Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates. Zero Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Nothing, nothing. Really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven. We would be in the cover of the newspapers, like these people came in and we're doing the first movies in South Sudan and we're working on the first film festival in South Sudan. There's an emo scene in South Sudan also. Tell us how you day drink on hard liquor. Tell me, because I've been trying to figure it out for years. What's up everyone? Welcome to another episode of No Blackout Dates. I'm Evan. I'm Tim. And today we're talking to Clara Wetzel. She's a filmmaker who has directed documentaries and short narrative films. She's also uh, most notably and recently filmed some of the first movies ever filmed in South Sudan. And we're going to talk about what it's like filming a movie in the midst of armed conflict and civil unrest, why movies are such an important form of creative expression and that's especially true in the face of authoritarianism. So we're going to go into all of that and more. That's right, Evan. This was a great conversation with Clara. And it's funny because it puts into a whole new perspective how important travel is to providing voices to people who need to be heard. I, I think that what Clara has done in South Sudan, helping local residents amplify their voice through narrative film, is so important and has provided a stepping zone for them to build a film industry of their own. It's it's super cool to hear how she got that to happen, where she's going next. And it's uh, honestly one of our most inspiring interviews I'd say we've done so far. I was just about to say that, yes, yeah, it's, it's one of our more interesting and definitely our most inspiring uh, interviews and it makes us feel like huge couch potatoes because while we're sitting here talking into Mike, she's out there in South Sudan, you know, filming the lives of these these people and what they're going through. And it's just absolutely fascinating. So first, we are going to get into hot takes, as always, coming at you once again with our highly intellectual and thoughtful takes on all things food, travel, nightlife, Altoids, hard-boiled eggs, anything you want. <laughs> so Tim, you want me to go first? I think I should go first. I'll ask you a few questions. All right. Go for it. First hot take for you. Would you prioritize location or luxury while choosing a travel accommodation? So if you could choose between a really, really, really nice destination, like really nice, you could afford it. So you could afford both. Very nice uh, Airbnb, but it's like, you know, five, a 10 minute drive outside the, the city center or a shittier like studio type apartment. It's got all the essentials, but it's just not nice, you know? right in the heart of the city, right within walking distance of everything you need, which one would you go for? That's an interesting question. And I'm tempted to say that I would choose location and convenience first. However, I have had two experiences that I'll share now that lead me to say that I might choose the other one. I don't know about luxury, but one thing I really value the older I get is is quietness, uh, particularly when I'm trying to sleep. For example, uh, in Medellin, Colombia, I was down there for a conference a couple of years ago and I had a great apartment with two other people. We were right in the Poblado area, walking distance to everything I was doing while I was there, the conference, some restaurants, bars, whatever. However, the apartment was right next to a nightclub that bumped until like four o'clock in the morning every single day. And so I slept terrible the entire time. Uh, I was exhausted and it really ruined the experience of what otherwise would have been a nice apartment. Yeah, that's the thing. Convenience often means you're near 
the hustle and bustle. You're not going to maybe sleep as well. Your windows, you're on, maybe on a first floor, maybe you, you know, are right above a nightclub. So it's tough. I, I also would tend to go with convenience every time because I have in the past gone with luxury thinking like, well, I'll, uh, you know, foreign country, maybe you want to be in a comfortable spot. You know, you want to come back at night to like a nice, well-appointed hotel right. or an Airbnb. But then every time as well, I, I wish I had gone for convenience because like, you can't put a price almost on having to take a an Uber or take a like rent a car or take a bus or figure out bus schedules and all this stuff that that complicate even if it's just a five or ten minute trip to get to where you want to go, and being able to just walk out your front door and go around the corner and go wherever you want, go get some groceries, go to the bar, walk back, not have to drive, it really is priceless. And I I honestly think that like if you're traveling, the idea should be. I'll never fault anyone for picking luxury, but the idea should be to spend not the most time in your hotel. Like always like dress for the destination, not the journey, I always say. So it's like almost always book for you know the vacation, the experience, not for where you're just going to be sleeping. Yeah, you know, I and I would add to that that I tend to not rent a car or anything if I can help it. I don't I don't really I try to avoid having a car. So I would have to say that countering what I said before, if I were to spend two months in Oaxaca living outside the city when I was going into the city constantly for work, I probably would rather have what we had where I could walk everywhere or hop in a cab for, for three or four minutes to get somewhere over having to rent a car for two months or buy it, buy a car for two months or whatever. So it's a tough conundrum. It really, really is. I, I, I'm tempted now to, to conclude with saying that I should just buck up put on a pair of noise canceling headphones and go for convenience. I, I, I have to say that's my gut feeling. Yeah, I would agree. Hey, maybe when I get to the, uh, the advanced age of 38 or whatever you are, I'll, I'll feel differently. But right now I'm going with convenience too. All right. Next question, Tim is day drinking overhyped. Uh, no, I think there are situations where day drinking is absolutely appropriate. I mean, if you're going to a baseball game, it starts at one o'clock in the afternoon. Of course you're going to get a beer. What I think is overhyped is the idea of of day drinking with the intention of carrying it through, right? Because you can only do that for so long. You can only you can only have a drink in your hand for so many hours before you want to go to bed, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's overhyped that so much is impossible, like for most people. If you're if you're getting up and drinking at like 10, 30, 11 a.m. with the expectation of doing anything at night at all, it's just unrealistic. My problem with day drinking is that people think that it's not mutually exclusive with night drinking. And it totally is. I mean, if you start drinking at like noon, you're going to be done by seven. Like you're just use R. Even if you keep it up, like good pace, seven o'clock rolls around. You've had like a few meals, maybe hopefully you're still, the food is going to kill your buzz. It just doesn't work. You're not going to be out till 3 a.m. So that's fine if you want to be realistic about that. But I think a lot of people have this fantasy in their head that we're going to start at noon. We'll take it easy. We'll drink steadily throughout the day. Then we'll head out at night. It's like, no, you won't. Sorry. You just won't. It won't happen. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, I, I've, I think that there are times when day drinking is obviously the thing that you're going to be doing that day. And that's what your day should be. You shouldn't be, you know, trying to then go out later or trying to have things that are going to be happening post dinner, post dark, whatever. Like if, if, if you're going to like a family get together or you're going to a, you're at a, a bachelor party where you're knowing you're going somewhere where you're going to be drinking all day. I mean, I wouldn't advise making plans after that. 
Yeah, yeah. No, if you're at a baseball game, you're at a day like a barbecue daytime event, you're out on a boat, and you know, okay, this is going to be over at four or five. I'll have some dinner. I'll go to sleep early. Totally get it. Day drinking, great. But any expectation of being up late just doesn't, it does not work. And I don't think I've ever really seen it work in like a meaningful way where people aren't just miserable and forcing themselves to, to keep it going. But my problem is that day drinking is synonymous with like a mar- like marathon drinking, whereas night drinking is more of a sprint. Yeah. I can't day drink because I don't like beer. And when you're a hard alcohol guy, you're excluded almost from day drinking because what are you going to do? Like pound whiskey for six hours straight? No. Right. And the thing is, is that it's almost the same with beer too, because you drink enough beer, you're just full and you don't feel good anymore. Like they, you know, there's this, there's the concept of the session beer, but there's an, there's a limit to the session to me, at least the session can't go on for like nine hours. You can only drink so many beers before you're like, I don't want to drink any more beer. It's just, it's just, I don't know how people do it. I would love people. Hey, send us in no blackout dates, pod at gmail.com. Tell us how you day drink on hard liquor. Tell me, because I've been trying to figure it out for years. Can't figure it out. Can't do it. Would love to be able to move past this roadblock. Let's figure this out together. Right. Okay. Uh, I like that, Evan. Um, I've got a couple for you. And it's funny looking at my list of questions Based on the seriousness of today's interview and and the inspiration drawn from it, I feel like my questions are very empty. But here's here's the first one. Have you ever created your own layover? And by that, I mean, have you ever bought different itineraries to get to a destination? uh, And then as a result, had a layover. For example, uh, a few years ago, I was traveling from Colorado to Mammoth in California and I found the best way to get there for super cheap was to buy a round trip flight from Denver to LA and then buy a separate round trip flight on a different airline from LA to Mammoth and back. So I did that. So, but the catch was I had to spend like seven hours at LAX. Okay. Yeah. So you're talking about merging itineraries to create one like fluid itinerary. Yes. yes. You, okay. you just so, said it much better than I did. But yes, that's what I'm yes, asking. Yes. Got it. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, so I had a few years ago, uh, two press trips for work, one to, uh, Germany and one right afterwards that I scheduled purposely right afterwards to Luxembourg. So I was being flown to Germany as part of this press trip. And then I extended my return date from Germany so I could fit in the Luxembourg trip, which is right next to Germany. So after the Germany stuff was over, I took a train to Luxembourg, had my like four day press trip in Luxembourg, and then took a train back to Germany, where I flew back home out of Germany. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, and that's even more badass than the example I shared. So you win, you win that question. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, no, so that was and I and I always always look fondly on that trip, because it was cool to have two very different honestly, countries that are right next to each other, two press trips back to back, which I normally, you know, don't do. Um, and it was all by myself, which is another, I don't know if your trip that you're talking about was solo, Tim, but I don't, I don't usually do solo trips. I don't like solo trips. I hate traveling by myself. Um, but it was an interesting experience to do all of that alone. Yeah. Yeah. Mine was solo as well. Uh, at least until I got to Mammoth, I was meeting up with the conference there actually, but the travel was solo and it was an interesting thing to, to put those two itineraries together. Okay. Next question. 
What is one thing that you always leave behind at hotels or airports? Okay, so I don't leave much behind because I'm like very anal about packing and making sure I take everything. But I'll tell you, my friend who I've traveled with a bunch, uh, and he's a smoker, constantly leaves his lighter behind everywhere we go. So we'll do a lot of road trips together. And every time we leave a hotel, we go to the next place. He'll always like frantically pat down his pockets and be like, fuck, I left my lighter in the last hotel. I'm like, this is like the 12th time this has happened in like three days. I don't know how you've done this every time. But I feel like lighters just like, they're like uh, the ring in Lord of the Rings. They just find a way to slip off your body and like find a new owner. Yeah, that's correct. And, and then like travel for generations on between uh, smokers and end up on the other side of the world somehow. But it'd be fun to do like a jerk, follow the journey of a lighter. Yeah, it would. That's an interesting idea. I, I'm a former smoker myself. It's been a long time now, but I had the same thing where you're always losing your lighter. I'm curious how many lighters he's gone through in his life because I'm just thinking like, like this kid's probably spent like half of a sal his uh, half of one year's salary in lighters over the course of his life. Sounds about right. But so no, that's I don't leave things behind. Do you leave anything behind? What's what do you I'm interested to hear this. Well, the thing for me is I, I'm also pretty OCD about packing and I, I basically just leave my travel setup intact most of the time, you know, because I'm in and out so often. But one thing I consistently have a problem with is water bottles. I always bring my water bottle and a coffee mug with me because I want to be eco-friendly, not use plastic water bottles, yada, yada, yada. But I almost feel like I'm offsetting that because I seem to always leave water bottles in airports. It happened to me just the other day when I was flying back from Idaho. I left my water bottle in the Salt Lake City airport on my layover. And I did the, I did the same thing in Singapore. And another time, and this wasn't entirely my fault, but it kind of was my fault. This goes back to my gate checking habit that I do all the time, uh, where you gate check a bag voluntarily before you get on the plane. because you know, you're doing a favor and making yourself feel good and also not having to carry it to your final destination and not having to pay to check. So what I did was I gate checked my bag. This was a flight from Denver to El Paso. And I had my hydro flask in the side pouch of my bag. Uh, and when I got my bag back at the El Paso airport, it was gone. So it fell out in the plane somewhere. Mm. So I've lost no less than three nice hydro flask water bottles in airports or on planes. You have a problem, Tim. You need to figure that out. Like it's happened enough that you should, you know, stop doing that. Yeah, I know. The the benefit I have is that on press trips, they always give you a water bottle now, at least on the outdoorsy press trips that I'm always on. So I, I have no shortage of these water bottles. What I do is I only unpack the things I absolutely need. And then I almost immediately repack them in my backpack. So like if I'm on like a four day trip, I don't unpack my clothes at all for my backpack. I keep them all in there, yeah, ni nicely folded, and I take out what I want, unless they're like dress cl dress clothes or like a nice you know, something nice that I want to unwrinkle, and I'll put it in the closet. But I just put everything in my backpack, keep it there until I want it, grab it out for the day, put it back in. Same thing, like all that's out is like my phone charger, a water bottle, and like my toothbrush stuff that's in the bathroom. So there's really nothing for me to leave. I don't take, I don't unpack anything. Well, I think that's going to wrap up uh, today's hot takes. We'll get into it with Clara here in just a moment. Real quick before we dive into that, we want to, I don't know, what do we want to do? Do we want to do anything? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I did that. I just didn't know what else to say. I was, I was like, I was interested. I was like, wait, wait, what? What are we doing? What are you doing? <laughs> this, this is hey, we can do it. This is your time, man. We can do whatever you want. Wait, what do we want to do? <laughs> it's your show. You can, this is your platform. That's right. God damn it. 
All right, we're here with Clara Wetzel. Clara, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we're going to talk about your documentaries, your experience in South Sudan and Africa. But first, why don't you talk a little bit about the what took you so long documentary team that you're a part of? We're a group of around 18 people, and we're mainly working on producing solution-based media. So we do everything really from the visual identity of a video series or a long documentary to the edit, the distribution, the communication strategy. So what distinguishes the What Took You So Long team uh, from other documentary filmmaking teams? So you guys you try to highlight kind of underrepresented stories, cultures that aren't typically shown in, in movie making, right? Exactly. I think, I mean, I would say our focus is on positive storytelling. And this is really where we try to to be different from a more mainstream media, really. I mean, we um, we were traveling a lot. We realized that many of the stories that were being told weren't uh, representative for everyone or they just didn't feel like they were positive. It felt like a lot of the stories try and point towards where the problems are, where the issues are. Um, what's going on in the world and nobody wants to engage in that because you know you want to put all that pain and suffering to the side but if rather you would show people that are doing things to change this that are passionate that are motivated that are entrepreneurs from wherever you are whether it's in the small village in the north of Argentina to in the middle of New York what are people doing to change those stereotypes to change those main narratives and and this is what we're passionate about. And finding these stories and showing these stories is is really what we hope makes us different. Yeah. So what do you find are some of the maybe stereotypes uh, that you're trying to dispel or move away from in your coverage of the South Sudanese people? I mean, when it comes to South Sudan, South Sudan is um, is a country that immediately makes you think of war. And I say this with, with like my heart going really fast because it's not right now. It's not what I think about. I have great friends there and I've made amazing products and art um, products there. But before going there, that's what I used to think. And it's a country that is very new. It's the youngest in the world and it got independent from Sudan, from Sudan. And then two years afterwards, it started a civil war that lasted seven years. And then, so it's like you think about war, you think about um, conflict and about um, people having to move from their homes to find refuge in another place um, that is not an, under any kind of threat. Is there any type of a, a film industry there or a, a cultural kind of creator scene or is it something that is all kind of coming in from the outside? There's definitely a scene. There's definitely a scene. Um, when I was there five, six years ago, the scene was starting to grow. I think right now it's much, it's, it's there already, but I mean, there's always a group of creatives everywhere in the world trying to do amazing things, but sometimes what's needed is, you know, maybe a bigger network, maybe a different tool. So in South Sudan before, before, um, there was some movie industry, there were people doing TV, there were people doing radio, there were people doing theater. Um, so the artists, the creatives, the people that want to tell stories, they are there. They're everywhere. I mean, people have been wanting to tell stories since the beginning of humanity, basically. Um, what I think what we 
came in there to support with was well, we we took we took we took cameras. That was one of the first things. That's the number one for film. <laughs> but you guys did make some of the first documentaries, was it that that were ever made in South Sudan, right? We had been doing a project there with Internews, and then um, Bingo, who is who is now a dear friend, contacted us and asked us if we if we wanted to be part of of mentoring some of the first films of the country. Um, and Bingo was organizing the first film festival of the country. And now the film festival now, um, well, 2019 was its fourth and, and last edition so far. Um, and it was over 22,000 people attending to the film festival. And this is a country that I believe has no cinema right now. So the, the screenings wow. are all organized in, at universities and in different places outdoors and but yeah it's 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 young local filmmakers wanting to make high quality films that can then go and travel the world that can go to festivals in europe and the states and kenya or, or wherever they want they're people trying to to make great things so you would think though that so in the absence of physical cinemas because that, that makes sense there would still be kind of a creative drive uh, there'd be filmmakers wanting to tell Sudanese filmmakers wanting to tell their their own stories. So but there's been an absence of that. So was there a lack of tools to to make it happen, uh, resources, or was it a uh, like kind of a government uh, oppression issue? It could be a combination of things. It could be that there weren't enough tools, that there were no uh, professional uh, equipment. It could be that the know-how was not was not there. Um, it, it could be j just the transition from reporting to storytelling um, is, a is, of course, very necessary for when you're making films or even the transition from TV to film. So what are those small things that you do different to make that into a film? They were fiction films, actually. Um, so that was also a very interesting process. It was fiction, 100%, having the stories, writing the scripts, doing the storyboards, the casting, choosing the actors. I mean, that whole process we went through and uh, to create those those four movies um, back then. Can you pick one of them maybe and, and talk about what the what it's about and how the country inspired the plot, I guess? Well, actually, that was one of the biggest um, surprises, uh, a, a great learning moment for me too, because, and it has to do with this thing that we were talking about before that has to do with the narrative. So Initially, you would think, okay, people will tell stories of, of what you know. What what are you thinking? Maybe of, of something sad. Maybe of conflict. Maybe of, but actually, people, you know, people were wanting were wanting to tell love stories, and that and that for me. But the four, because before we chose four movies, we had to choose ten. We we chose four movies from ten scripts. And most of the movies were about love. And that for me was very surprising. It's like people, they're young people wanting to tell the stories of who they're in love with and why that love is difficult and, and why they can't be together. And some of those things had to do with, the, with what the country was going through at that time, but some didn't. Some is just like, like all of us, you know, wanting to have the attention of someone that doesn't want to give us the attention that we want or... There, there's an emo scene in South Sudan. Awesome. <laughs> How open are the South Sudanese and a lot of these young people that, that you're working with to talking about 
their past and how they identify with their country and with what their country has been through since it became independent? I didn't feel there was there was I didn't find anyone to be not open about it. I I, I feel that I was the one that was more sensitive towards it because I, I you know, when you're when you're in somewhere, maybe you don't, you don't know what's what's appropriate to talk about, what you can ask, what you um, but people were very open about telling their stories and and still now people are coming to us today and saying like, hey, I I really want to want to find a way to tell the story of where my mother is. I haven't seen my mother in many, many years and I have no idea where she is. So how do we make this movie? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because like as a Westerner, you feel like you hear about a documentary film crew going to South Sudan. You think, okay, the movies are probably going to be about civil strife and, you know, uh, the uh, oppressive regime and violence because that's how we perceive a country based on what we hear on our news cycle. But, you know, it's really just about these universal themes of family and love and all these other things that we wouldn't normally associate with a country like that, which is, it's ridiculous that we wouldn't, I guess. So it makes total sense that that's what you guys were, the stories you guys were telling. Exactly. And that's, I mean, this is, again, what we're trying to, what we're trying to do. We're trying to go against these main narratives that are media, <laughs> that the, that the, but the main media is is presenting to us. That's not that's not it. That's not even a portion of what's going on. People maybe want to tell about their favorite uh, singer songwriter, or maybe they want to just play music. Or it's not. I, I I believe. I mean, I believe there's a there's a given situation that may have to do with conflict wherever there's conflict, not just in South Sudan. So that could be your context. That could be like, okay, this, I was here at this time and place, and this was going on. But that's not the story. That's just the context around you. Like, I would say, hey, I'm here. I'm Buenos Aires. I'm in Argentina. Someone else would say, hey, here, I'm in Juba. I'm in South, um, in South Sudan, and this is the story I want to tell. And that can have nothing to do with the con, or it can have a lot to do with it. But Right. That's, that's the, the background against which, you know, people's lives and their real stories actually happen. Yeah, where they unfold, exactly. And is there, I, I don't know, you you don't know or want to get into all the politics of it, but the government of South Sudan and, and the kind of, you know, the strife that is occurring, does that make it more difficult to produce films? Did it impact your filming uh, as opposed to filming someplace in Hollywood where you can kind of go around and do whatever you want and film whoever and wherever? After South Sudan became independent, a few a few years after that, um, the civil war started in 2013, and it went on until 2020. And basically, a political power struggle broke out between President Kiir and his former deputy Rick Machar. And these two were continuously fighting. When we were there, even um, Rick Machar was actually, I believe, in Ethiopia. Um, and he wanted to come back to Juba, where we working, where we were working on the films, and they they weren't letting him board the plane because of the amount of um, ammunition and, and uh, army and uh, I don't know what else he was he wanted to bring with him um, in his plane. They weren't letting him board, and every day we would have to wake up and read read on Twitter: Is Rick Mashar coming, or is he not coming? Is he coming, or because everyone was preparing for something 
for some conflict to break out. He was coming for some peace dialogues, but everywhere people were preparing for conflict to break out. And it did a couple of weeks after we left. So it was this ongoing tension of having to work on the films, which actually were exciting news for the for the whole country. We would be in the cover of the newspapers, like these people came in and we're doing the, the first movies in South Sudan and we're working on the movie, um, on the on the festival, the first film festival in South Sudan. And then at the bottom right of the newspaper, Rick, Rick Machar coming to town. <laughs> hey, you ed you edged out the political uh, news. That's pretty impressive. Uh, scary, scary. <laughs> Do you feel that, I mean, with the positive coverage that came of what you guys are doing, is this going to open the door for uh, South Sudanese filmmakers to take the lead on their own projects and produce festivals and produce films and travel and take that stuff outside of their country's borders? I think it did. I think it did. I'm going to I'm going to definitely call them up and be like, "Hey, I did this podcast." Like <laughs> Yeah. What happened after? I want to hear a lot more of what happened afterwards. Um but I know it did. I mean, just the fact that there were 22,000 people coming into the festival in 2019, that may that meant that the festival is still a huge success. Awesome. Yeah. And you know, there they have tons of film i think there were like 42 movies being premiered at the festival we made four so i'm sure things are growing i'm sure everything's growing very fast um and it's not i mean the efforts it's their efforts they're the ones that that got the money and hired us and i'm also curious what what you took away from filming there and 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 whether or not you learned anything about filming that you would take to other places I mean, it's been it's been some time since I, I've been thinking about this a lot. Actually, um, I've been thinking about at that time I was younger. I for me it was an experience. It's like you're there, you're in this situation, you're making these movies happen, um, you're collaborating with people. You're um, I my background isn't fiction filmmaking, so for me, seeing people create their own films and being and witnesses their 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 processes the way their minds are working to create those films was was the thing that i appreciated the most because you're essentially understanding someone's thoughts because in a fiction film you have to really think about everything you do if you are placing um a cell phone in the corner of the table there needs to be a meaning for that everything in fiction is constructed everything so if the, the choice of clothes, the choice of hair, the cho so everything has thought behind it. And to be able to see a director make their own movies and, and have them think about every single detail and how they would like to represent that story, those characters, their country, for me, that was the most amazing thing. That was like, I'm really understanding how things work here. Like, I'm really... Um, there, I was working a lot with filmmaker Alex at that point, and we always had a translator. And I swear that at the end of the festival, <laughs> I was speaking Spanish to him and he was speaking Jubarabic to, <laughs> to me. And we were just understanding each other. And I used to get so, I'm like, but you need to do this. You need to know where you're going to put your camera. You need to know. And, and he would just respond to me. And I would understand. It would It became that kind of connection because... I was trying to understand him as I was trying to understand his choices. I don't know if this makes any sense, but it, it was it was really like like a 
like going to my therapist or something like that. So of the four films that you made there, do you have one that stands out as your favorite? Working with Alex was actually, um, I think my best experience. <laughs> His movie, it was a, a, a South Sudanese version of Romeo and Juliet kind of, but maybe without any death. But it was definitely a beautiful love story. And oh, you just spoiled the ending now. I'm sorry, Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> um, he and and he actually acted in his own movie, so it was like <laughs> super avant-garde um, director actor uh, working on his own film. I always wondered this: How does someone direct themselves? Like, how do you? Because I hear about that act. Like, Woody Allen directs movies and he, you know, acts in them. Like, how do you do that? How do you direct yourself? You just like look at yourself in the mirror and scream at yourself about stage directions. Like, I don't get it. I think, I mean, I'm, I can imagine everybody would have their own, um, their own method, but, but I do, I do believe that, you know, if you know a character well enough because it's in your mind and you're a good actor, you can just go ahead and play it. But we did do with Alex some, uh, we did go over some scenes where, where everybody would give feedback and, I remember um, maybe we were like three, four, three or four women there um, and then the rest men. And then there was a scene where the character of Alex would ask his girlfriend to marry him. And his first try at this was like, hey, I've been thinking, let's get married. And the three girls <laughs> and myself were like, what? Like, this is not going to fly. Like, how would, why would you ask someone to marry you like that? Like, it was so funny. The four of us were giving him feedback on how that wasn't, you know, that wasn't a good proposal. Like, in, yeah, you're like, I would absolutely say no to that proposal, even if we were going out for like 10 years. Exactly. Exactly. Like, just not good enough. That just isn't going to cut it. So he, he changed that, I think, a little bit, not too much, of course. So. Tim, that's how you proposed, right? You just said, hey, let's get married. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Totally out of nowhere. Did she say yes? She did, actually. It was a little more staged than that. but you know. First first date. First date. Tinder date. Just <laughs> wow, wow. 30 wow, minutes wow. in, he's like, hey, let's do this. In my head, at least, yeah. He's a, he's a fast mover. <laughs> Clara, I'm I'm curious, and we can we can edit this out if it's not correct, but the website says that you were, or your company at least, was on the ground in Beirut after the explosion and worked with Jose Andres's, uh, his charity, World Central Kitchen. I'm curious what the experience was like there and how it contrasts to being in other war and torn areas. We do a lot of work with um, World Central Kitchen, with Jose Andres's uh, organization. And usually, because we are the, the parachute filmmakers, we try and be on the ground as soon as a disaster happens. So I was in, in for hurricane season, I was in Honduras and in Guatemala and in Colombia past November. And I mean, when we were talking about people having to leave their homes in conflict areas, when disasters hit, this is exactly the same. People, we were in, in the island of Providence in Colombia, people are left with nothing, Not, all houses, went to the ground, a whole island, no homes left. Everybody had to be evacuated. So we got stuck in, in Providencia maybe for a night. You would have to come in and fly out every day. And at some point we got stuck because we didn't catch a flight out with the military and we had to stay there 
And I remember I was there with, with our colleague, Sam, who works for World Center Kitchen. And he said, okay, good thing <laughs> that we have a car. And he slept in the car, I slept somewhere else. And then we had some snacks and, but it's, a you know, after a disaster hit, there's no energy, no running water, the roads are blocked. Um, fuel is really hard to get. So the production does become complicated, but we're there filming their journey, let's say, and that's what's different. We're, we're accompanying them. So we're filming the journey of how the meals get delivered there, which is a, a, as hard as a, I mean, harder than, a, than making a movie, actually, getting hot meals to an island after hurricane hit. Yeah, what he's doing is amazing. Absolutely amazing. You've traveled obviously all over, but what's like the next destination you'd love to film in? I mean, it's a hard question because right now Argentina <laughs> restricted its flights by like 70%. I was meant to be filming in New York and to be filming in Panama, but that didn't happen. And um, there's recently, we started working on a project with an organization that works in the Amazon region, in a, in a bunch of countries around the Amazon and in the Amazon region. And I think we're going to get some amazing stuff from there. Um, working with local and indigenous communities on how they're mitigating climate change and, and what they're doing to, to, how are, yeah. just as a quick point, how, how are indigenous communities mitigating climate change? I, I feel like that's such a, like the, the green initiatives, I feel like are such a, um, like urban white kind of Western initiative that only people who live in san francisco and, and new york city can afford to be interested in so if you're like an indigenous community like what do you what do you do well there's there's two interesting things about what you were saying one that sometimes even here in south america we hear people say like sustainability coming from the us and i'm like hey like sustainability is expensive like organic hey organic is yeah you know? totally that's that's one thing but on the other thing um the movies that we're trying to make, um, and we're working also with another, uh, with, a, with a UN Equator Prize initiative, and they're actually doing amazing work to show the stories of how local and indigenous communities are doing relevant work to help the, the climate change crisis. And sometimes that has to do with just advocating for their own land, which is forest standing, like they, they they are activists to keep their forests intact and all those forests are, are helping us keep the carbon on the ground that what that happens a lot in the amazon region um there's people you know there's women in nigeria that are not using plastic anymore to sell food and now they use banana leaves or there's um people in hawaii building uh small dams with rocks to prevent um the water from from pushing the soil towards the the ocean or so it's it's a lot of protecting the land and it's land it, and we need that for our own uh, clean water and, and our own fresh air and there's people that are the guardians of those spaces and and we and we owe to them you know that we that we get these stories out there and that they get more support to do the work that they're doing and that they have been doing for ages and ages and ages but you know we take it for granted that's super interesting actually maybe we'll have you back on after you do that trip and you make those you make those documentaries because i'm sure we'd love to hear more about all that um well i guess we'll we'll close on our listener question every week we have we ask a question that is sourced from our listeners and we you know get your thoughts so to th this week's is 
authoritarian governments have always been an issue in Africa and South America, but we seem to be in the midst of a wave of authoritarianism right now, not just in Africa, but in Eastern Europe and South America as well. Can independent film industries in these countries play a role in turning the tide the other way? For sure. <laughs> For sure. I figured you would have something to say on that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're talking about this, right? We're talking about uh, an alternative storyline, an alternative narrative. It's, it's you know, wherever there's any type of author authoritarianism, there's, there's usually one angle to things and that's just simply not life, right? There's multiple angles and, and we should all work towards trying to understand other perspectives and integrate them into our own. And, and, and if we can, and if we've been so privileged and, and lucky and if we've had the opportunity, how do we support other people to get their stories and their perspectives out there? So, and, and, and art is such a beautiful, subtle way to do this, you know? It's, for me, of course, I, I love that medium. Yeah, I feel like because authoritarianism or autocracies like rely very heavily on pushing a very certain narrative and a specific uh, worldview on how they want their country to be perceived. And that severely glosses over oftentimes reality at the expense of what everyday people's lives are actually like living in a country within a certain context. So again, what you're doing is really like visually showing people what it's really like in a place and giving a window into people's actual lives, not just what kind of government media might be showing the rest of the world. So it's something you can't get even from literature or from newspapers because it's so it's visualizing something is so much more visceral. I think so. As long as, you know, we don't get anyone in trouble and, <laughs> right. and we got yeah. and we don't get ourselves in trouble and we're mindful and sensitive to the real stories, um, then we can do a, a great work. You know, we we need to work on on collaborating with people. We need to work on bringing collaborations alive. Great. Uh, I think that's all we got for today, Tim, unless you got anything else to add. No, I think that does it. But uh, I just want to say, yeah, I, I agree. Thanks, Clara, for coming on again. Where can people find you, uh, find your movies, the South Sudan documentaries? Yeah, I mean, in our webpage, whattookyousolong.org, you can find our, our latest work. Perfect. And any, where can people find you if they want to keep up with you? Same webpage. We'll put it in the show notes. Instagram. My Instagram is Claddy Wetzel. All right, Clara. Thank you so much for joining us and take care. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay. Well, we're here in the takeaway section after a great chat with Clara. Thank you again, Clara, for coming on. Uh, that was an interesting conversation because we got a lot of insight into how film is being used to give people a voice and how people are expressing thought and lived experiences through film uh, in places where they aren't given a lot of a voice. And I, I think that the biggest and first takeaway from this talk was that, you know, what we see in the mainstream media in the U.S. and in other Western countries isn't always what the lives of people in other places are. Yeah, I'll be the first to admit when we first when we had Claire on and we were getting ready for the interview, I was thinking, that her filmmaking experience was pretty much in the South Sudan, like dodging bullets and like crawling through bushes to film stuff because the country must just be in a constant state of, of civil strife, which is obviously not the case. The country has been, it's relatively new, has been through a lot. 
and there is violence, but uh, you know, the lives of the people's lives go on. People have families, they have relationships, they have hobbies. And that's the real story of the South Sudanese people, not whatever political situation might be going on at the time. That's exactly right. And I think that, you know, that's one of the beauties of what she does and what the people who are making the films in South Sudan with her uh, are doing is that they are they're creating a voice that they aren't given. Uh, and, and, and it's not just in South Sudan. It's in anywhere where there's an oppressive government. You, you can see it all over the world where, where citizens are creating a voice for themselves through independent filmmaking and through independent media. And they're putting that out there for whoever wants to take it. And that's how you can actually get insight into what people's lives are like. Yeah. And that I think leads into the second takeaway, which is how independent filmmaking is a huge key for citizens to have a voice in countries where authoritarianism is rampant. Absolutely, man. And I, you know what? The crazy thing is, is I think it's true here, even in in the U.S. and in in some of the most, you know, quote unquote, advanced democracies in the world where you have people that are don't feel represented by the government or the mainstream media or what have you. And they're creating voices in their own way. And, you know, there's obviously positives and negatives to that, as we've seen over the last several years here in the U.S. But I think that the fact that people are using media, whether that's film or written word or audio like podcasts to put their voice out there is overall a very positive thing. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, creative media is huge. Uh, freedom of creative expression is huge. And I mean, hopefully Clara's work really helps kickstart the film industry in South Sudan. Um, sometimes all it takes is, you know, a few popular films about your country or about something you relate to, to really inspire other people to, to, to do it. And that's, you know, it's weird to say that a few movies can make like a political difference, but I really think that they, even non-political movies like hers are, that they really can. So absolutely. A lot of good stuff there. A lot of good takeaways. We are going to be back at it next week with yet another episode. We can't wait to share with you guys some huge news that we will i think be sharing next week right tim we should be able to share that next week that's right Eben. all we can say right now is that the ink is drying tune in next week make sure to leave us a five-star review on apple leave us a nice comment in the comments tell us what you think send us an email at noblackoutdatespod at gmail.com let us know what kind of guests you'd like to see we want we want to hear input from you guys who do you want to talk to who do you want to hear from let us know We'll see you guys next week.